oh man, I can't believe I have to stare at this, this installation slash VM visual merchandising for the next, I don't know, hour. Are you about to talk shit? This is Making It Up, episode 197, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Kan. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Make It, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, shop discounts, and more. Let's get into it. I don't agree with this how would you say it? it's a slogan motto. i guess this motto golf is life no i disagree courtesy of melbourne well. golf there's a melbourne golf pop-up right across from us golf is not life the issue football is life i have is danny rojas golf as a sport i mean the use of land for golf the use of resources to maintain the integrity i'm probably the world's golf biggest golf hater i'm also a golf hater hey man Good start to the year. Agreeing on hating golf. Anyway, let's not get into it. <laughs> let's not get into it. No shade to the brand itself. The, the sport, you know, football is just more um, economical. Democratic. Yeah, democratic. democratic. I think that for me, golf in the context of where it's going is probably a bit better for the middle to longer. Everyone's like, oh yeah, golf's coming back because of the pandemic. And obviously people were able to go and spend time outdoors. Oh, because it's like so it was no purely social distance with people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is a great social distance sport. Football's not. Yeah, less so. I mean, but the golf in itself has changed dramatically. Like, I think that golf is not you necessarily going and playing a round of golf. It's you hitting balls into like, oh, like a machine. A yeah. 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 I Which mean, I, updates not, and modernizes I do not speak it. from a position of expertise, seeing as how I played golf twice when I was 13 and never again since. All right, what's up with you? Not much. New year. What's with the hat? Dude, man, oh, this is now another segue into another bad. The hat doesn't fit. What do you mean doesn't fit? It doesn't really fit. It's 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 a it's a sports like this. Are you just wearing it like? It's supposed to be worn like this. But it makes your head look big. Sorry. I have a big head though. <laughs> Anyways, it makes it apparent that your head is big. Then. It's because it's it's because my hair is tied up in a bun in the back. Okay. All right. All right. This is purely some sort of weird aesthetical decision where I know it's kind of non-conventional. You would use the word non-conventional sure, to define this hat. Yes, yeah. I would. With a hat. It was a yeah, deliberate I choice. Like, I want to wear a hat. Dude, I, and I'm not happy to admit this, but I was up until 3.30 a.m. last night looking for the perfect hat. But what, did, what time did you start looking? Like, if you tell me you started working, you know. I probably started at, at 2.45 a.m. That's and not so bad. Then you only spent like 45 minutes looking for a hat. I stopped at 3.30 a.m. I probably should have been sleeping. Well, yes, but you probably should have been sleeping at like 1 a.m. So. Yeah. Anyways. Anyways, I've been looking at hats, you know, haven't really found one. Okay. What is your criteria for the perfect hat, Eugene? It has to have a deep enough, I don't know the right terminology, but basically the. Cap part? Yeah. Has to be the sufficiently deep. Okay. And it has to be. Water resistant. Because you're afraid of air conditioner is dripping water on you. Oh, how dare you? 
You know what it's like in Hong Kong. It rains. Uh, somewhat breathable. Okay. I was Sorry. looking at this valence hat, but I'm like, the valence hat lacks the shape I need, and it doesn't look very deep. Like, it doesn't come down far enough. But I don't want a traditional, like, baseball cap. So I need you're to somewhere in between. Hat. No, I want a baseball cap. No. Oh, you're looking for a baseball cap. Yeah, with a brim. But I can't imagine you in a baseball cap. You always wear the, like, hats with the brim all the way around. Yeah, maybe I'll... I had one from Muji I really liked, but it started delaminating. The taping inside started coming off. Anyways, I feel this is not how we should start the new year by talking about random shit like this. Okay, let's restart. No, let's just get right into it. All right. You want to go first? Sure. The countdown begins to episode 200. It really does. I think we released 48 episodes in 2021. I think I got some reminder. Oh, yeah. I checked on Spotify uh, or something like that. Not a bad year. So at the 200 mark, I don't know. We didn't decide if it's starting with 200 or with 201. Eugene, 200 is the last episode. Okay. So or should two, we stop at 199? Because that's like this weird sort of like. No, we should stop at 200 because that's round, right? So no, but 199 is episodes. the unexpected like, oh, that's weird. Why they stop at 199? Sure. Anyways, I, it doesn't matter. I don't really care. Um, at any rate, somewhere around 199 to 201. Eugene and I will make some kind of radical departure from our current format. Put a break. TBD, what it is. Yeah. Um, but whatever it is, it's not going to be the Cherise picks a subject, Eugene picks a subject. We describe it and analyze it for like 20 minutes a piece. It won't be that. Y- you, know, tell you, that. you know why I've stopped enjoying that? Because I feel myself, because I've had less time to just naturally look at other things i basically get funneled the same content and i feel like their topics are increasingly just the same shit you know every few weeks is repeated i also just the, feel the themes that are the same you and i have talked about a lot of the same subjects over the last two years and i don't know if it's because we have stabilized as people but our views have not changed that rapidly on those same subjects so therefore, I know if we talk about this subject, this is like pretty much where we're going to fall in the discussion. It's true. Which makes it less enjoyable for me. Like, but uh, people con- seem to continue to actually enjoy listening to us. So maybe they don't feel the same way. I think the thing that is valuable about this exercise that we engage in, you know, pretty much every week is just the formalization of thoughts and ideas and how to articulate them yeah. on the fly. Like I'm, it's, it's in some way some sort of professional practice. Neither of us are public speakers. You have to speak publicly more than I do. This is a kind of public thinking and speaking practice and being able to listen to someone else and respond appropriately, which is actually kind of what my subject today is about. So anyway, for folks, you can expect something different. If you have strong feelings about what it is we might do format wise that could take us through like another hundred episodes, um, we're all ears. One thing I would say and. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there there's certain elements of like running this podcast that if there was a t- a team to help oversee it, like if we had like, you know, some sort of greater financial success, then you would bring people in to handle certain parts of it, which would probably yeah. make it more enjoyable. Like if I was to kind of outline what an ideal scenario would be, be like, hey, you would work with like a research team. You would have an editor. Well, I mean, someone handles social media. You and I, we would just come into this booth and talk for like two hours. And then someone else would handle, as you said, 
the prep work and then all of the post-production and uploading and marketing and distribution. But, you know, it's not that I don't like that. It's not that I don't like that. But I think that in light of just the current trajectory of our lives, it's just more and more difficult. Well, Yeah, because more and more we see this as an obligation that takes time. Which is concerning because yeah. there are still elements to it that I really enjoy, yeah. but is being, you know, detracted by I'm, the fact that- I mean, on this topic, the biggest change I've seen in myself that maybe, I, you know, if, if five years ago, you, I told you I was going to start something and I knew there was a finite end to it, I'd be like, oh yeah, that would never happen. Like I pick stuff that I, I want to do for the rest of my life. And I've talked about this before, right? And maybe I just wasn't stretched as thin as I am now. But I definitely feel that vibe and I'm like, oh man, you know what? It's okay to put down things that no longer bring you joy. Obviously, you have to build up some sort of ability to be in that position. But I'm also okay, like, you know, starting something, seeing it fail, you know, pushing to the side. I wouldn't say, I don't call this a failure though. Don't get me wrong. It's more that like, hey, your attention is being pulled in different places. And that's also sometimes a good thing. It means that your attention being pulled by other things or other people is because you're successful or you're 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 needed in these other places i mean i see the value of projects having time constraints and i think it's actually can be very uh, creatively inspiring if you do set up a project with a specific time limit like this is going to be a six months project this is going to be just for 2022 however when it comes to making it up i'm not saying like this is infinite like i don't see myself doing this for the rest of my life until i die However, do you see yourself providing some sort of published audio discourse like that to me is something that you could probably do for a long time? I mean, yeah, yes, I, yes, you know I what I mean? Do, like if like, you take a step back, I, what I still enjoy is I still enjoy talking to you specifically. Like I could go off and be like, hey, Eugene, like I want to go do my own project now that's like published audio, but I'm still into this yeah but i'm not like i am not under the illusion that we necessarily make it to like a thousand episodes like that's quite mental yeah 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 anyway should we get started let's get started properly okay this is an essay i read sometime in december mid-december it's written by an author jasmine wang she is the editor-in-chief of kernel magazine she's published in a number of places. She used to be at OpenAI. I came across this just through, I think, other people retweeting it on Twitter. So just by chance. And the essay is called Attending to the Other Under Conditions of Algorithmic Life. And essentially the entire essay is about the nature of attention, our attention and the attention different people at different parts of their lives might use on something and also about our fractured attention as a society. Also with context, um, this past week I had to attend a teaching seminar like mm-hmm. about teaching you how to teach. And do you want to guess what the average attention span of a university student is? According to the seminar that I attended. What, how do you categorize that? Like what is the start and stop? They didn't tell me the nature of the study. Well, that's but stupid they said then, like, like the ex- extension of their attention span before it like drops off, before they become inattentive. 32 seconds. That's low. It was 10 minutes in that oh. seminar. 
I have. However, however, what's funny is that last night, I can't find this again, but I promise you this was from a study somewhere. I know that sounds like bullshit, but I saw a paper that said something much closer to that seconds figure, which says that a uni student's attention is 65 seconds. Yeah. So anyway. I guess it depends. Like I'm talking about, like for me, the reason why I was thinking of seconds is because they're always thinking... If you don't uh, capture someone within the first few seconds of a video, then they're, they're going to move on kind of thing. Well, I mean, if we talk about like the nature of thoughts, then yeah, I suppose thoughts are always streaming through your head. But in this context, it was about like, if you are giving a lecture, at what point are students going to drop off? And it was like 10 minute mark. And then you have to change things up, which for a teacher is actually really stressful. Like, you have to change what you're doing every 10 to 15 minutes. Anyway, uh, Jasmine writes about attention and there's one paragraph I'm going to read to you. There's a famous Taoist story of the butcher who never had to sharpen his axe since he had studied the object of his instrument so closely that the blade slid cleanly through flesh, never encountering bone. One of my closest friends says his love language is deep attention. When I'm confused about a situation, he listens to what I have to say, directs me with careful questions, and then goes away for a few hours. Eventually, he comes back with a question or framing that slices through my fog. I treasure his speech deeply. The attention that undergirds it stands in sharp contrast to the hastily shared words and online takes generated against a backdrop of common knowledge that attention is both scarce and low quality. Damn. I like that. Yeah, I, I really like this Taoist story that she references as well, that if you pay so much close attention to your tool, what you use, then you always get it right. Like the idea of like, you never have to sharpen your ax because you're always making like the right slice. This is not meant to like boost my ego, but like there are a lot of times when I talk to people and I think maybe this is something that that we, we as like an agency like sell as services quite often is that this idea of like branding and strategy based off of just like taking in a shitload of information and synthesizing it into what's most important. Like this is like how a, a most recent job came across. Like, hey, like we are this um, call like a Web three like VC fund, right? And they're trying to understand and and synthesize what they represent. Obviously, trying to move past this traditional VC bro type approach. And when I was thinking about it, I'm like attention in itself, in in that context, could be very micro, like. I'm listening to you, but sometimes if you're always paying attention, that in itself provides you with tools to assess a problem at hand. So like, I'm not listening to you and just listening to the problem at face value. I'm pulling learnings from like five years ago, something I read two weeks ago to help formulate an answer. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. It's like long-term practice of paying attention becomes rewarding over time which is what you're saying that if you've spent the last five to ten years of your career or career sounds really clinical life yeah paying attention to your jobs and your clients and the work and the world around you and whatever you read then that turns into the ability to analyze and synthesize in in a moment in a short conversation right and then that's like like a short-term kind of attention where you are in a you know, meeting with a client, phone call, whatever, and you're paying attention to what they're saying. And you see much more into it than just like the words that are coming out of their mouth. Yeah. Like, like you have all of that context, background knowledge, relationships, 
Yeah, like if you meet with someone who's in gaming, but you're somewhat familiar with the macro movements in gaming, you're not learning from scratch, but you kind of have enough of a picture to how to potentially provide a solution to their challenges. The one thing that I always have a bone to pick with, and it, it was rooted in that first opening quote you gave, sometimes people equate paying attention with saying something, right? Mm. Like you often need to say something to acknowledge and to have a quick retort to suggest, yes, I'm tracking on what you're like saying. I'm present here. Sometimes people think I'm not paying attention because I don't say or do anything, but like, actually, there's a lot of things I'm like surveying and scanning that just get put somewhere in this repository that gets filtered out. Like, that's generally how I, I process information is like, I just dump it. Better analogy would be like, hey, there's, there's, you know, thousands of Lego blocks thrown into a bin, yeah. different colors, different shapes. And then from there, I'll just go and create my own thing. Oh, my, my categorizing based off of four dot blocks or is it colors, et cetera. So you kind of figure out your own way System? of categorizing it. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. It's it, maybe it's because we've matured and getting I old. I don't know if it's about maturity. I suppose even it's not really about age. Some older people also want to like prove that they're paying attention, like prove that I'm in this conversation. And that's why they say something. However, I, I mean, part of me worries that this is interpreted as laziness. But I, I mean, you know this, like I've become very slow to respond to people, but it doesn't mean I'm not thinking about what you said to me. So you actually sent me a message about three to four days ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. About making it up that I haven't responded to. It was about, no, it was about making in general. Well, including making it up. Yeah. Um, well, I thought about it in the context of this podcast as well. Anyway, you sent me quite like a big, to me, it felt like. Heavy. It was really a heavy. complex problem that I wanted to sit with, right? Yeah. And I'm unresolved on my answer. I'm also not going to like respond on air. But I think that that is a type of attention. I'm not inattentive just because I haven't said anything to you, but I think it's the opposite where I want to give it the time and the level of thought that it deserves. That is something that gets misinterpreted sometimes because there are moments where I'll throw big unsolvable problems and I'll put it on the table knowing full we can't solve it, but it's for that exact outcome of, hey, there's that thing that was said in the meeting or whatnot. I don't have a solution. He doesn't have a solution. Let's chip away at it. Because sometimes the solution doesn't come until, you know, let's call it five weeks later when something clicks, something connects. Yeah. And I mean, some people might potentially find this annoying, like the raising of, you know, in uncertain, uncertain problems, yeah. problems not immediately solvable. Because I do do this with my students. Like they have projects that let's say the deadline is in two weeks. But they show me their work and like I get excited by some kind of possibility that I see in it that I know that they can't do in two weeks. OK, mm -hmm. like with the project, but I still want to tell them. So I'll tell them like, OK, I don't mean that you need to do this. Like, don't go and don't go and feel stressed that you're going to do, need to do this in two weeks. But like, I think that this could be about, you know, A, B, C, D, E. Or, yeah. like, think about this problem. Yeah. Right. Because it's too short sighted. Right. To only just mention things that you can solve in the next couple of weeks yeah next couple of days i've tried really hard to change my communication behavior to be more social media friendly just like you know the for better or worse like a lot of the stuff we do on the agency side sometimes equates to this 
heartbeat approach to content, meaning just like for a brand, heartbeat content is like stuff you just put out with regularity just to show you're present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me personally, it's hard to do that. Like it's not that I don't have anything to say, you know, I'm super opinionated. You ask me any question, I'll have something, but I, it's different when I'm forced to put it out in the world on my own accord, because, you know, when you see it, when you're always listening, I feel like I'm regurgitating someone else's thoughts that I've read somewhere else yeah. as my own. And that to me is tough. Like some people are, you know, it's not an original thought, but they'll share it and they don't necessarily need to credit it. I'm not asking they do it either, but I'm just saying that like, if you were able to get back past that mental block, it's like powerful because in many ways, I how mean, do I put this? It's powerful in a marketing perspective. Correct. Marketing I understand perspective. what you're saying. If you are able to convince yourself to produce this kind of content and publish it at like a specific regularity, then it could unlock specific job related doors for you. However, I don't think it's really beneficial to your personal mindset. Yeah. Because like what you're saying about like, oh, if I read an interesting thing, let me just take this quote. Let me paraphrase it. Like that's not me applying any kind of like my own level of thinking. If that's your own expectation, I'm just moving things from A to but, B, but but in some ways, like moving things from A to B in a way that the person can understand it more clearly is still valuable. Like I think in 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 general, that's kind of what our skill set at Macon has always been. It's like to distill complex ideas and thoughts into something that's approachable. Sure, but you're making it more complicated than what I said in my example. My example is like, oh, I read this like pithy quote. Let me yeah. take this quote, right? Like that's not that's not the level. I love that you the were word describing. pithy. Yeah. Okay, so later on in this essay. Uh, there's another paragraph that I really like, and she moves the essay to not just be in general like a rumination on what attention is, but about the importance of attention when it comes to the actions that we do. And she writes, this practice feels urgent. Wheel, Simone Wheel, another author, believed that simple attention was required for moral attention, which was required for empathy, which was required for ethical action. We are unable to act ethically towards that which we have not first attended to. This includes other humans, but also to the non-human other. The art of attention requires, among other things, an openness to being moved and transformed, the development of language, and the resistance of algorithmic life. And to give an example that she also mentions later on, it would be about global warming mm -hmm. and climate change, right? And so to apply her argument is that in order to genuinely take ethical action with regards to the climate crisis you must first pay attention to the subject of it like the world itself forests oceans you know icebergs those elements and otherwise the action that you take is not unethical but doesn't have the power that it could yeah which I agree with, I think. And, I, you know, to bring it closer to home, I think, like, let's say you want to do something meaningful for the place that you live in. Like the, the physical place that you live in. I think it starts with just paying close attention to your exact neighborhood. Like, when does the trash get picked up? Are there, you know, street sleepers on my block? Uh, is the traffic light broken? Like those really small things, which actually I think a lot of people don't care about or don't pay attention to. And it's through like paying attention to these details that you come to learn how to take the action of caring for yeah. a location. And this is something I've been thinking about 
over the last like six months, I think, or year maybe living in Wan Chai and thinking yeah. about, I mean, know, how do I take care of this place? But, but the underlying challenge right now is people lack time, right? To assess and to dissect and synthesize ideas that have broader implications. Like we've always talked about this is that I wouldn't say always, but like, you know, it's, it's a theme that we've touched upon is just like the modern sort of capitalistic complex prevents us from having the time to think and just do nothing. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. And then it, it, we parade certain services as, Oh, like game changers, meal, meal prep, meal deliveries, stuff like that. I think are meant to sort of change our lives, but then it's, trying to solve a problem we got ourselves into in the first place that is systematic or that's systemic, I should say. It, it's trying to solve essentially a systemic problem, right? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it would be, thank you for the reminder because it would be irresponsible of me to like talk about attention and like the need to pay closer attention and not acknowledge that our capitalistic world prevents us from being able to use our time and energy the way we most want to and that's like not a fact that we can change quickly i think like for myself this is really small but i do try to just not look at my phone for some extended lanes of not even extended like okay later on we're gonna leave here i'm gonna go to campus and then i might try to just not look at my phone for the duration of that commute when I would usually be looking at my phone, so which is something really small, but it's like the time I have control over. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One more paragraph and then we can wrap this up. So towards the end, uh, Jasmine writes, the sociologist Hartmut Rosa calls a similar mode of relating resonance. Instead of viewing ourselves as closed off independent systems bent on controlling the other, we should leave ourselves open to being affected by the world responsive to its call, and thereby allow ourselves to transform and be transformed by it. This orientation reminds me of how one must approach a poem if one hopes to be moved by it. You can analyze it and justify the artifact rationally, but in the end, you must encounter the poem bodily as a totality. And I think, well, one, it's interesting because we both picked our subject super late, but this is somewhat related to yours. And this paragraph, she's using the idea of attention to refer to how we form relationships and communities and that if we close off our attention, we close off the possibility of being part of larger groups. Mm -hmm. We think yep. that we have all the input we need already. This is it. This is my like little bubble of knowledge and awareness. And then when we have open attention, we, we allow ourselves to possibly be affected positively negatively just like in unexpected ways by whatever we encounter yeah so yeah, yeah i mean i got a lot out of this essay and i have shared it with a couple of people actually to wrap this up my cousin happened to ask me after the new year he asked a group chat we're in whether you have a theme for your year i have one did you have one already yeah but this theme was introduced by the tail end of last year so just to clarify, he said his is the year of risk and definition. And by definition, he means defined goals, defined strategies, defined wants, defined direction, clearing the wishy-washiness. Damn, you guys have pretty intellectual family chats. <laughs> Dude, yeah, it's my, a good, it's my, a good my family 
chat is literally my my aunties and uncles sending like happy Chinese New Year gifs. I have other family chats that are like that. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what's this your year of? I think it's the year of focus. Mm. Well, I mean, we've already started like like even making it up coming into the pits at episode 200 is in many ways a desire to refocus and to find intent. I think also just, you know, being spread so thin over the last 12 months. You know, I we, we did I did a little internal exercise and we did 30 projects in 2021. Oh my goodness. And it was just like nonstop. And that's we're super grateful for that opportunity because it's actually set us up for a certain level of success for this year, which yeah, allows us to focus. Like I don't have to go and chase every single thing. And also I can set up deals in a way that I think that will benefit everybody yeah. in a more equitable way. I, I mean, mean, at did, least I our side. Mean, oh my goodness. Like, as in, I'm sad. It's, I, it's obviously congratulations, but also, you know, I agree that you have stretched yourself then. Yeah. It just, it sucks when you know what quality can look and feel like, and you've actually attained it before. I mean, to be honest, sometimes the quality you want doesn't need to be what you've done at the highest level before. Right. But at the same time, it's like it is frustrating when you know how good something can be. That's always the issue with quote unquote creatives, right? Like technically only, you know, how good something could be versus the final output. For me, I said because we were doing this group chat that my year is a year of attention and presence. And it was related to reading this essay. I was thinking about it when I said attention. And I think. For me, it's been increasingly important because of the teaching and maybe one of my biggest learnings is that you can be a really great teacher by allowing yourself to really be present with an individual student and you don't need to be the smartest person. Mm -hmm. Your student likely actually knows more about a subject often, but what they need is someone who's just fully committed to hearing them. And providing that kind of like critical thought and attention. Yeah. And I think that like I want to, for me, I think my theme applies to relationships as well. Like I want to be that kind of present in my relationships with my friends and with my family. Nice. Should we move on? Yeah. Over to you. Right. My topic today is inspired by this piece called Tribalism is a Self-Fulfilling Prophecy. This appeared in The Atlantic and it was written by two authors, Dominic Packer and Jay Van Bavel. So Jay and Dominic just recently penned a book, The Power of Us. They talk about essentially tribalism and how you unpack all the different layers, right? And I think that in a political context, tribalism has dominated, I think, a lot of the political discussion because it's bifurcated, especially in the United States, is the bifurcation between, you know, Republicans and Democrats. But I think that in general, there are so many political issues that have created these very clear divisions. Yeah. You know, like, extremes. do you want to get vaxxed? Do you not want to get vaxxed, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason why this is interesting, this topic is because I think tribalism in this context feels a little bit pejorative, like, you know, it's a bad thing, but I've also heard it used in a positive context. And this was maybe predating community like tribalism in itself was community and as we know brands pretty much anything that operates now 
has community quite close to like why they're good. This is mm. a good brand because the community is strong. But in reality, is it good because the level of tribalism is high and the buy-in is high? Yeah, right? I'm, I'm following. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, in, I'm interested in this idea of tribalism as a term that predates our use of community. The reason why I say this is because I remember giving a presentation at like Adidas Japan, like 2013. And one of the other guys that was like speaking, he was utilizing tribalism in a positive way, like just describing like streetwear or just different subcultural pockets as pockets of tribalism. Mm. In this current context, I think there's a bit of a negative connotation. In one of the opening passages, they use this quote from journalist George Packer, who said that American politics today requires a word as primal as tribe to get at the blind allegiances and huge passions of partisan affiliation. Tribes demand loyalty and in return, they confer the security of belonging. You could easily replace tribe with brand. Brands demand loyalty. I mean, they don't, but they try to demand loyalty, right? And in return, they confer the security of belonging, which is why luxury is so popular. They're badges of identity, not of thought. And then after the quote, the piece says that the underlying psychology of us and them appears grounded in deep-rooted human tendencies to carve the world into groups and discriminate in favor of one's own. So what's interesting about that is when you start looking at it, it's about satisfying like a deep biological need, obviously belonging, security, protection. But then now you're starting to see how that spills over into the social context. And obviously, it's easiest to look at it from a political spectrum. But I think that when you start looking at the way brands communicate and what they're trying to achieve, they're most definitely trying to tap into these goals and desires. Well, if, the, if this helps listeners, it's not just politics or brands. The authors say that you can think of tribalism as any group you're a part of. So it could be a book club, a recreational soccer team, a cooking hangout. Like those are also places where there can be tribalism. Carry on from what you said about groups. They define this word groupishness as a term that some researchers use to describe human tendency. So this human tendency to align with social groups, it's part of a much broader, I guess, system in a way, like a framework where you have actions, cooperation, altruism, embracing diversity and helping people different from ourselves. So I think there's different ways of aligning this to achieve a common goal. Right? It seems counterintuitive in a way. Like I did follow this argument, but yeah. essentially the authors say that groupishness can encourage people to behave in ways that are actually better for the wider collective society. Yeah. So instead of that groupishness means you only care about the people in your group, groupishness can lead to you behaving positively in general yeah. to the world. And one of the, some of the examples they use is that for every political group affiliation, which is maybe on the negative spectrum of tribalism, there's also positive things like, you know, charity groups that in themselves are looking at people maybe that are outside, but are willing to help. So the latter half of this talks about how that you can set up groups to be more open-minded and to have a sense of empathy to help others and to actually create a little bit more of a harmonious environment. So I think that this in itself is maybe moving a little bit further away from this element of how brands operate. However, what it does do is like if brands have an underlying goal of introducing ideas and thoughts 
their ability to latch onto like, let's say diversity, being LGBTQI positive. In short, what the argument is, is that some of these tribalistic groups, rather than adopting discriminatory norms, these groups can also promote tolerance, acceptance, and inclusion. This reminds me of how back in the summer of 2020, the BTS Army, which is fans of the K-pop group BTS, collectively raised a million dollars for Black Lives Matter. It's like an example exactly of what you're saying. When groups of a tribalistic nature are, I guess, introspective and they understand and acknowledge where they sit within this level of openness, it actually empowers them to do more. So what that means is that like, if this is a tribalistic group of people, and we're not using necessarily tribalism in, in the context of political affiliation, but just a group of people are open-minded to ideas and to discourse, that in itself opens up the ability for them to help and or interact with other groups. However, if you see yourself as a group that's largely closed off and the barrier to entry into the group is so one-directional, mm -hmm. like you need to fully prescribed to this or you're not allowed into the tribe, that is when you find a lot of friction. And one, one of the interesting examples they use is that following the invasion of uh, northern Iraq, where ISIS was defeated, there were a lot of different religious groups like Christians, Muslims that were deeply divided. And on paper, this looks like, you know, grounds for another civil unrest. Yeah. But what they ended up doing was they identified what was a good way of coming together and and find a commonality, which happened to be playing soccer, playing football together. Oh. Yeah. So. No the, wonder you picked this. <laughs> well, no, I saw this halfway through, but so basically political scientist Salma Musa recruited amateur Christian soccer teams to join this new league. And in this setup, what they did was they actually brought players of different religious backgrounds together on one team. So they were playing together for the common goal of obviously playing well, you know, winning, et cetera. And what this did was they actually created more inclusive attitudes from both sides. Because I think that's what you're ultimately trying to do is that you're trying to create a baseline and a common denominator that allows people to build on top of. That's one thing that's always challenging is that when you and I have areas of conflict or disagreement, it's harder for us to like convince one another this is how you should think. It is much easier to find a commonality to build off of that so that that commonality then allows us to understand the different points of difference. Like your perspective is rooted in your culture, your human experience. So is mine. So I think that's what's interesting is that like, you know, finding that baseline uh, and, and leading with that first. Because I think this is one, one thing that we're, we're increasingly seeing in this the world and the sort of geopolitical stability is that there's so much division based off of uh, probably a misunderstanding of people's intent. Not to say everyone's like, you know, doing things properly, but I think there's a, a little bit of misinterpretation. Like in many ways, I think that the quicker you can kind of establish, this is something I, I like to do is like kind of when you're going in and figuring out something. I mean, this is obviously bringing it back into our world is like negotiations happen all the time. Like you're a client, I'm a service provider, et cetera. The, bu the budget doesn't align. Okay, well, what's the most important thing and what is ancillary or what is extra to this? Can we cut that out? Does that make sense? Like that already is an, an, a real world example of how that could be applied. And it's obviously it's not in the context of tribalism, but you do, you do re represent competing points of view that need to find alignment. I think in terms of tribalism, what you talked about observing in current society is that there's a lot of haste in 
assuming where a person is coming from. And there's way more of a tendency to like, in your mind, I think, just like this immediate judgment of what the differences are between you and them. And actually what I'm thinking of in particular are these like Twitter discourse slash arguments about NFTs, DAOs, and Web3. And there's a lot of, as you said, like hasty misinterpretation there about you know people behind the profile pics, right? And I think that that's, this is like the most negative side of tribalism, but on the positive side of tribalism would be to, as you said, to start from what are the commonalities and how do we build on that? I actually saw a great tweet thread from an artist I follow named Jessica Hish, who I would never have expected to like, like she's kind of old school. She used to be well-known for like hand-done typography Mm -hmm. and she was tweeting about NFTs Mm -hmm. and it was really great and just um, started. I think what was different about her writing about it was exactly as you've said, like trying to point out what she had in common with other people who are skeptics. In this tweet thread, she starts by saying, I'm going to just straight up say it. I'm a crypto artist sympathizer. I like seeing artists make money and pay off debt. I like seeing artists discover new paths to creativity. I like seeing artists find new people who love their work and find value in it. And I thought this was like so clever by starting with, I mean, not clever like she was trying to be manipulative, but this opening of saying things that she likes that surely like people are going to be on board with, like from her community. I was like, oh, yeah, I I do like artists making money and paying off debt. And then from there, like she talks about, you know, NFTs and Web3. Yeah. Because I, I feel like that's always the argument that's hard for people to push back upon because I don't think anyone inherently feels art is net negative. It's net positive to the world, right? People enjoy seeing creativity exercised. So when you leave with that argument of sustained creativity and art, it changes the discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I think regardless of the Shilsters, the speculative nature. Oh, we don't have to talk. We don't have to talk about that. We but don't I have to think, talk about that, Lane. That's but, just an example. But of- in short, you've kind of removed that negativity from it. Obviously, there's always going to be a lot of other things. Just trying to begin from a place where we can agree. And then moving into all of the, you know, different elements that there might be disagreements on. I'm just going to read this last paragraph that closes it off. I will say that in general, there is this vibe around the piece being kind of like, oh, this is how new leaders and business owners can lead this next generation for cultural values and whatnot, but I think it's still valid in in talking about how to encapsulate this thought process to apply it in a way that hopefully generates more, I guess, unity in a, in a time when there doesn't feel like there's a ton of unity. Um, and they say, understanding how group identities combine with norms to shape human behavior also empowers people and especially leaders to focus more on cultivating healthy norms within their group. Rather than assuming that groups will slide into hostility and insularity, humans should hold ourselves to higher standards. For me personally, obviously culture is like incredibly important because it's a set of invisible forces that create alignment and also allow you to co- achieve a common goal, right? Without, without necessarily the need to sprinkle money on top. I think obviously financial incentives are helpful, but I th- I'm starting to see... And it's taken me a little bit longer than probably most people, but the intersection of culture and financial incentives can actually be very, very powerful, right? So that's that's sort of 
my whole take on it because I led with the whole brand argument because a lot of brands are trying to understand and 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 capture this and that's in many ways and why I think brands are increasingly important because the product is one element of a brand but so is the representation and the story behind a brand and understanding that aligns you with certain people that develop a sense of in this context tribalism with your brand mm-hmm. and then within that that allows you to align them towards whatever it may be and that could be as simple as like i'm going to sell you more product it could be a little bit more far and far reaching like oh you know what i have the underlying belief that if we do this then we can solve that right and a tribalism in itself is just strong community yeah i agree i mean yeah. i we say brand and i think a lot of people do think of brands in relation to consumer products consumer products however there are brands that are services there are brands that are for selling non-tangible products so you know it can be netflix or apple music or something like that where i i see tribalism being more effective employed by a brand as opposed to let's say like selling consumer goods which is a little bit trickier to tie in like this deeper tribe ethos yeah all right good place to wrap things up for the day if you are interested in hearing more about making reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture you can visit us at makin.com you can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms if you like this podcast you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash making. Patreon members get access to the Making Discord where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>